My name is Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. This podcast will be about my story and my words, talking about my own personal experiences and self-healing. I do not claim to be a therapist, counselor, or licensed psychologist. Hello, my name is Amanda Bedard, and I'm the co-host, producer, and editor of Invisible Tears. I'm a Reiki master, certified professional life coach, spiritual coach, wellness coach, and a counseling practitioner. Some of the content you will hear in this podcast may be disturbing to some. Viewer discretion is advised, but it is our hope by putting this information out there that we may help others to heal. We will always be a platform for truth and healing. Brought to you by Glassbox Media, this is Invisible Tears. Welcome to the Invisible Tears weekly bonus episode, where we react to the Dark Valley episode that dropped last week. This is a reaction to episode six. Welcome to Invisible Tears. Thank you for being with us today. We are doing our reaction episode for Dark Valley. And we are on episode six. And I'm here with Amanda and Drew. Hey, guys. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Doing good. Good. Doing good. Good, good. So this episode pretty much touched on Linda Moore. She was murdered in at her home in Saxons River. There's a few things to touch on with this one. (laughs) Um, Drew, do you think they're connected? You think her case is connected with the Connecticut River Valley? When you look at the fact of it was an intrusion during the day in Vermont, signs would point to no. However, the stab pattern, the number of stab wounds, and what we found out from last episode, when the final murder in Claremont in 1984 happened, there was PSAs put out by the police kind of warning people in the area about hitchhiking, about getting picked up by strangers, that there were women going missing. So it's kind of interesting that here in 1986, you know, Linda Moore is murdered in her home in Vermont. And now I do kind of wonder, was this deliberate by the killer? Was he sitting there feeling like, Uh, The authorities are catching up on me in the Claremont area. What if I just cross the river and change the attack slightly to try to throw them off? However, once the attack started, just that quote unquote ritualistic aspect of the number of stabs needed to get that whatever frustrations out or to reach that point of, you know, the quote unquote climax of the murder still accounted for over 20 stab wounds to her body. So I do actually think that they are connected. And it was possibly a way to try to throw off authorities. It would be interesting to find out the true timing of when those PSAs started to just see if there is some sort of correlation. Like, did the PSAs go out and then everything sort of stopped? Was was Linda Moore sort of like a frustration attack and purposely not 
you know, in New Hampshire, kind of like you were saying, it would be interesting to know the timing. Yeah, I kind of looking at a couple of other different things too. Like, you know, these are a few things that Jen never talked about or mentioned. One, the Moore's house is on a main road going from Bellows Falls to Saxons River. Now, if you look at where Eva went missing, it really isn't that far from where Eva went missing on Route 12 in the Claremont area. Because where she went missing, you could go right over the bridge, which right on the other side of the river is Bellows Falls. So I kind of look at that and I'm kind of looking at the sad pattern. Yeah, the slicing of the throat victim of opportunity was she just out there and he saw her i uh, happened to go by the during the day uh, again a daytime attack and i was kind of wondering did he actually try to take her i almost want to say yes because i mean she broke her nails so she did fight and struggle this is my assumption that she did pass away fairly quickly that with the the blood splatter and the slicing of the neck, she bled out pretty quickly. But I don't know. I think being another main road, you know, it seems to be, that seems to be a, a pattern too with most of the cases, not all, but most of the cases, a very well-traveled main road going from one town to another. So yeah, that, that was one of my one of the things that I was using to connect her to the Connecticut River Valley cases too, at least connecting her to um, Eva's case. Now, have you seen where her house is located? Oh, yes, I've been there. So is it right on 121? Yes. Okay, it is right on. Because that's where when we were trying to look at it last night. We weren't able to find, you know, the exact address or even, you know, we would hear Saxons River, then North Westminster on 121 right off of 121. I was looking at the kind of a uh, topographical map, you know, cause we saw uh, one article stating that the house was right on a very sharp corner. Yes. Well, the house sits back a little bit, but it is on a corner on, it is right on Route 121. Now, would you be able to see the house or where she was sunbathing if you were driving on I-91? No. No, okay. How about if you are on the Saxons River itself? I'm not sure. Because I was just curious as to was the killer out hunting either by driving up and down I-91 or checking out, you know, swimming or fishing holes. When you look back at, uh, you know, Kathy Milligan, the first murder, it was a bird sanctuary. So then going, okay, if there was a swimming hole or a fishing hole somewhere around their home that he could see her sunbathing, was he almost watching her ahead of time? much like the other victims are either hitchhikers or at a convenience store. Now, you can be parked in a car near a convenience store and probably not have anybody notice you. Or driving up and down on the 991, nobody would notice you. So it did kind of get me thinking of, was he possibly watching her ahead of time? And it got me thinking about, Jane, your case. How many spots on Route 10 near Camarillo's is there that you could park on the other side of the street and just sit there and watch to see if somebody pulls into that parking lot. But with Route 121, though, it's mostly rural, especially where they are. I don't believe there's any main businesses there. I think it's a, um, a very rural 
road, but very well traveled. But I wouldn't call it like Route 10 at all, because Route 10 is a very busy business road, uh, even back then in the 80s. Route 121 was very different, very rural. Houses, it's not like the houses are close together. They all have fairly large yards. Um, There's spaces in between houses. So it's not like they're like on top of each other or one right after another. Now, this is what I remember in the 90s, I think, is when I was there. Listeners probably wouldn't wouldn't know, but we would know. Almost like uh, Route 63 going from Hinsdale to Chesterfield. You know how that's a main road, but very rural. Yeah. That's a good example of 121. Okay. Yeah, because Jen had mentioned that the house was settled along the river. You could walk up and down that river, fish, swim, just go for a walk, and nobody would think twice about it. So I was just curious if you could almost see the backyard or the front yard from the riverbanks. But I've never been. I've never seen her house, so I don't know what the layout looks like. Now, does that river run totally alongside Route 121? Because if it does, it would make sense that maybe he was fishing or whatever along the river, walking down beside the river and saw her in the backyard. Yep. The Saxons River runs right along uh, 121, really just from Westminster area right out to to Grafton, Route 121 and the Saxons River run right next to each other. So that, that's a very good possibility that he was along the river and uh, he was able to see the backside of their house or the backside of the pool from the river. And, you know, possibly him just using her as a way to throw off authorities too. It's in Vermont. Let me do a blitz attack. Let me leave the body in the home. It gets that murder aspect out of the system, but also tries to throw off how it's different from every other uh, murder in the area, too. Yeah. You said that you've been to the home. When you met Steve, was that the home that you went to? Did he still live in that same residence? Oh, yes. Yes. Wow. Okay. I didn't know how long he lived in the home or if maybe, you know, he sold it after or, or whatnot. No, he ended up raising the kids there and, uh, yeah, he stayed in the home. It was a beautiful home. I saw one picture from an article and it looked very large, very beautiful. Yeah. You know, another possibility I was thinking of, too, is um, Steve is very well known in the community, whether it be Bellows Falls. Uh, I know he owns, even today, he owns several businesses, a uh, property, a lot of apartment buildings. He has numerous rentals. So I often wonder if maybe it was somebody that had cross paths with him and they were kind of stalking him but her at the same time small community especially in the 80s everybody knew everybody everybody knew that family in the community uh, whether it be uh saxons river westminster west bellows falls uh charlestown claremont they were well known and with all her the stuff that she was involved with too so i kind of i kind of wonder did the killer know them in one way or another, cross paths with them one way or another? And uh, he had killed before and uh, maybe was not happy with them in, in one way or another. And um, 
chose her to be a victim. Knew that she was home alone during the day. Good possibility. Now, have you stayed in touch with Steve at all over the years? I have not. No. Now, it was Cindy that he was dating? Yes. Julie's sister-in-law. Kevin's sister. Now, are they still together? Oh, no. That was a very short relationship. That was like maybe a couple of months, a few months. I mean, he seemed like a very nice guy. I can tell when I met him that day, he was extremely uncomfortable around me. But yet, it was almost like he wanted to ask me questions. He wanted to talk to me. But like so many people back then, didn't know how to ask me questions, didn't know how to start the conversation. I think he probably didn't know how I felt about him with so many things going around about him. And um, Cindy was kind of upset that he was uh, so intoxicated that she just kind of like made the visit rather short. I know when I left, he said that he, he would love to have met me again, meet up with me again, and it just never happened. I never really reached out to him again, and he never reached out to me. So it wasn't like we were avoiding each other. We just didn't reach out to each other after that. All I had ever heard before from both you and Philpin was how many times he had been investigated and how everybody kept on going back to him and how many polygraphs he had he had passed and rock solid alibi. I always wondered why on earth would the police be doing this with the little bit of background that Jen gave about the affair earlier on, even though she made sure and clear that that he knew about it. They had moved past it. So there really wasn't any motive there. But with learning that piece of information, I sort of understood a little bit more from the police perspective. Do I think that they need to keep on going back to him? No, not at all. But it was interesting for me to hear. I had never heard that piece of information before. I had not either. And I think the way he reacted, I think they felt like he he went back and he wrote his employee that check and And I think that they um, found that odd. I, in a way, did not. I mean, he's a businessman. The guy needed a check. You got to do what you got to do. And and everybody grieves differently and handles things differently. And um, honestly, I don't know how I would react. I don't know what I would do. Exactly. It really just sounded like he was in shock. And so he reverted back to the frame of mind that he could have control over and could focus on. I think a lot of people, when they go into shock and they start grieving, they'll actually just focus back on work, especially if they're extremely work oriented. I know I do it. I've known lots of people that do it. So I think that's what it was. It it really was just shock. And the only way he knew how to react. Was to go back on autopilot. Yep. That's what he he needed to do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Now, have you stayed in touch with uh, Chris? Linda's son? I have not. Okay. Matter of fact, I've been trying to contact him, um, but I have not been successful. I do have uh, Allison on my Facebook. Actually, Allison and I share a birthday together. (laughs) Small world. We don't talk about her mom. Chris is kind of like protective over her, especially way back when Nicolau was in the picture and we were trying to get, you know, in contact with him. He was extremely protective over Allison. Hopefully one day soon, I'll be able to sit down with Chris and talk to him. 
Yeah, because I was curious too, because when I was reading some articles about uh, Chris's name is being mentioned as he was being spoken to by reporters, it was revolving around when Nikolaus' name was brought to the case. So I was curious, what's Chris's thoughts on Nikolaus as a suspect, or does he truly believe it was just Lynn Cardi found somebody to try to tie the pieces together. Back when the Nicolau thing came about and Lynn was trying to contact Chris, I also was trying to contact Chris and I did get an email from him. Um, it was shortly after the Bradbro reformer article about it. And, um, you know, Chris is like, you're sweet, you're nice. You know, I know you've been through a lot, but I really don't see any evidence or real connection with Nicolau in these cases, especially my mother's. And of course, that at that time is when I was putting out there, oh, is Nicolau that attacked me? So Jen had put on Dark Valley on the episode, she had quoted Chris in the paper that Jane's attacker was not my mother's attacker. I think he was referring to the article in the Reformer when I was saying it was Michael Nicolau. So he was responding with, no, it was not Michael Nicolau that attacked and killed my mother. I don't think he's really technically saying she was not connected to the Connecticut River Valley murders. I think he was just responding to my response of, Back then, I felt like it was Michael Nicolau. See, and I found uh, a statement from Chris last night searching that stated, person of interest in Jane's case should be reviewed to exclude as a person of interest in Linda's case. So I took that as, okay, if they're able to find somebody tied to your case, does it tie to Linda's case or not? Because then that clearly identifies whether her case is part of the serial um, attack or not. That was how I interpreted it. Yeah. And, you know, I can't help but think they must have some kind of DNA with her case, Um, especially with the broken fingernails. There's got to be some kind of DNA or some kind of forensics where her case, he was in the house, got to be some kind of fingerprints. You know, did they compare fingerprints that they found in their house two fingerprints they found on my car, you know, did they go as far as to do that to either include or exclude one of us from the Connecticut River Valley cases? I have a lot of questions about that, but I really tend to believe that they have some kind of DNA from her crime scene. She had to have scratched him pretty good to break her fingernails. That was a very strong sign of, um, she fought fought him pretty good. I would like to see them go further with uh, what they found at her crime scene compared to what they lifted off my car. I wish they would they would go further into that. But we're also talking about two different states, <laughs> Vermont and New Hampshire, unfortunately. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
And now back to our episode. Based off of what we heard in the episode, there's another composite, there's another sketch that's floating around besides the composite that was created from Jane. And it's the one with the military glasses. Just so everyone knows, it sounds like that person not only is not a person of interest, they're not a suspect because based off of what Philpin said, um, they were just very quickly, he was found, he was identified, and he was very quickly discounted as a person of interest or a suspect. So just so people are aware that like that's a piece of like misinformation that's like out there, like the other sketches out there isn't actually the killer. It was a witness that they wanted to talk to and they later identified. So I think it's important for everybody to realize that and note that. Exactly. Very good point. Um, I, I don't understand why that sketch is still floating around. It shouldn't be. It should be taken out. It should be taken off. He's been identified. He's been questioned. He's been cleared. Why is it still up there as a, a person of interest? I don't, I don't understand it. It really does need to go away. <laughs> or have some kind of explanation with it online. Because if you look it up, there is no explanation. I didn't even know that that person was ever identified until I heard this episode. That was, uh, that was news to me. And quite a few of the images that I found actually put your composite right next to that one. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there's there are characteristics where the face does look similar. I mean, obviously, this face has glasses, but with people putting it side by side and comparing it, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now we know that this was just a witness. Yeah, just the person they wanted to speak with. They identified him and they did speak with him and they cleared him. So, um, yeah, they really need to stop putting that composite next to my composite or put right across the picture identified and cleared or something, you know, because people still look at it and think that he's a person of interest. And for those of you that are just listening, if you want to pop over to our visual on YouTube for this episode, I will actually put up a picture that is the picture that we're talking about that's circulating out there so you all can see it. So just to circle back a little bit, I was able to find the article where Philpin is uh, quoted saying that there actually wasn't any DNA evidence during the Linda Moore attack. So found out that she did break her nails. Was it on the killer or was it on something else? Was he trying to drag her out of the house and she was grabbing onto the wall or whatnot? Very good possibility. I guess it all depends on where they found the broken fingernails. And uh Well, oh, that's interesting. Good find, Drew. Yeah. Very good find. Who knows? Maybe the Vermont State Police would be a little bit more forthcoming than New Hampshire State Police. So what do we think about Linda? In what sense are you referring to? <laughs> well, you figure she was, she was what, in her early 30s. She liked to go out with her girlfriends. She sounded very social. She did. She sounded extremely social with everything in her life, with the school, with all um, of her volunteer work, with her friends, you know, liking to go out and I don't like to say party, party, but I guess she liked to go out and have a few drinks with her friends. And she, she did seem like a, very much like a social butterfly. Oh, there's the butterfly. <laughs> Honestly, based off of those pieces of her personality, I can actually relate with her, especially in like in my early 30s too. That was very much oh, yeah. my sort of personality too. Very social, maybe not always necessarily going out to like, you know, a bars or whatever, but out and about with friends and socializing and just... 
you know, having fun and living life. Yeah, that was me. I was going to say her personality seems on the other side of the spectrum as the previous victims. Would you agree? Oh, yes. Yes. Very different. So it's one of those, if she is part of the Connecticut Valley, then the personality traits does not really matter to this killer's mind. I mean, he has somebody as outgoing as Linda and then somebody as reserved as um, Alan Freed. It kind of just goes to prove the point a little bit more about the victim of opportunity, I would think. Now, there's been never any um, vehicle description, which I think is odd. So that would go back to him walking up along the river in the backyard. Which would line up more with uh, Kathy Milliken's murder. Yeah. At the sanctuary, somebody who wasn't driving by, but had to be walking in the area. So was yeah. it somebody who was a, a naturist? Because if you look at all of the murders so far, they either happened where somebody could be walking inconspicuously, such as Kathy Milligan's with the Bird Sanctuary and um, Linda Moore's with the Saxons River, or the bodies were placed along Sugar River. Yeah. You know, and what I'm finding too, and what I've been also noticing is he doesn't stand out, uh, especially with like um, Eva. If she went with him willingly, she was hitchhiking, especially with like Bernice. If Bernice was, you know, trying to find a ride, Ellen, you know, we still don't know if he walked up to Ellen to ask her a question or if it was a blitz attack. And it's all during the day or most of it. Most of them were during the day. Almost seems to me as if he doesn't stand out in any way. Like he's not like super creepy or fits in well with society as far as looks and the way he dressed or anything. That is something that I've been thinking about because the guy that attacked me definitely did not seem like strange or, you know, scary or he would have fit in well with the community. Like he, he would have been stood out. That makes sense. Yeah. He can blend well. Blend well. Yes. He can blend well in both his appearance, the way he conducts himself. So that all actually also alludes to a little bit more of the he doesn't come off to people as weird. I would think that he would have a pretty high intelligence and be able to really like sort of compartmentalize outwardly, seeming like a normal, blendable, non rememberable person, but then being able to flip that switch. Yeah. I think that piece is actually a pretty common characteristic for serial killers. Yep, sure is. So the last thing that I have is, Jane, you brought up something I had never really actually thought about too much prior, was you brought up the fact that if you hadn't survived, would Dennis still be in jail today? Yeah. It would have been easy enough to pin the murder on him. It was sure young would enough. Have. Yep. Yeah, I think when we heard that part, because we, Drew and I actually listened to the episode together, I think when we heard that part, we both just looked at each other and we were like, whoa, it's something we never thought about. And you bringing up that point was really eye-opening. Yeah. And Dennis drinking with his friends and them not remembering something, I find that extremely hard to believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the poor guy, he had to sit there and explain why he... uh had two different colored shirts on that night, which he really didn't. Yeah, um, I've thought about that a lot over the years. And you see it a lot on the news. 
you know, the spouse is blamed for, you know, the murder. And yet, years later, is cleared. And that goes back to Steve, too. It's like, just because he was a person of interest, his reputation is tarnished because people will always, have always, and will always have that in the back of their minds that there's a good possibility that he's the one that murdered her. Uh, No matter how much he tries to clear himself, has cleared himself, whether you like the guy or not, you got to look at the facts. And he has more than cleared himself over the years. But yet people still have that thought in their minds. You know, was it him? Could it have been him? A few years back, I heard it. I forgot, I was working on something. Maybe I was at one of my jobs and we were talking about the cases and somebody had mentioned Linda Moore and um, their automatic reaction was, oh, it was the husband. Everybody knows it was the husband. It's like, no, he's he's been cleared. You know, it's wasn't the husband. Why do you think it was the husband? It's unfortunate that Steve has to go through that. I'm very thankful that Dennis doesn't have to go through that. With Dennis, I mean, it would have been devastated to him for one, to lose me, but then to be accused of attacking me and killing me if I didn't survive. And then the community always having that in the back of their minds that it could have been him. I mean, that would have been a, a horrible way for him to you know, live his life. I mean, he was only, he was barely 20. I said several times before they came to me and said he was cleared that it wasn't Dennis, you know? I didn't know until afterwards the extent that they actually questioned him, especially when I was in the ICU. I mean, this poor guy is worried about me. He's worried about his unborn child. All he wanted to do was be in the ICU with me but yet he's also being questioned. How do you answer questions about something so horrific when you're already mentally going through so much, but yet you're so worried about saying the wrong thing in the wrong way? I can't imagine what he went through. He doesn't talk about it. As far as he's concerned, Dennis is like, you know, I was cleared. You survived. Our baby survived. That's all that matters. He doesn't dwell on it. He's just uh, pretty much moved past it. That's good. Yeah. I can't imagine how traumatizing that was, especially to experience at 20. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he was really young then. And of course, he's never experienced anything like this, you know. So yeah, it was, it was a lot for him. He's moved past it and he's good. But, you know, the unfortunate thing is Steve can't move past this because, again, Linda's case is unsolved. The only way... Steve would ever be able to really clear his name with the community uh, that has doubts about him is if her case was solved. And that's very unfortunate. Now, Jane, you talked about uh, speaking with other co-workers and stuff about the cases. Do you recall Dennis ever relaying to you that he had had discussions uh, with like co-workers or people, or does he just not really talk about it over the years? Yeah, he doesn't really talk about it. I think the way he feels about everything is, you know, I survived. Our daughter survived. It was 35 years ago. There hasn't been that we know of any cases after mine. 
It feels like I'm, you know, fairly safe today. I think those are his concerns. Dennis is all about moving forward. He doesn't dwell a lot on the past. He's never been a man to hold grudges. You know, like Invisible Tears, that's our project. He's okay with me doing this project with you guys. But as far as having anything to do with the project, he'd rather step back and not have anything to do with it. He has never even heard one of our podcasts. Oh, wow. He knows that this is something I feel like I need to do. But for him to be involved, he just doesn't feel like he adds anything to it. If he were to get involved with this project or maybe even just listening to some of the episodes, it may bring him back to a place that he's like okay with not being at. And that's difficult. So I respect his opinion and wishes. Yes. Oh, and I do too, very much so. You know, he's never really talked to me about what he went through right after my attack or what, you know, what he experienced, what he witnessed, what he saw, but he spoke with other people about it. He still feels a great deal of guilt that we were not at the fair together and we didn't leave together, but he doesn't talk about it much. And, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, I've been with the man for 37 almost 38 years. I know how he is. I know how he thinks. I know his boundaries. I know what to talk to him about, what not to talk to him about. And I totally respect what he does not want to talk about. Yeah, I believe my dad and Dennis have talked about you and your case maybe two or three times over the how many decades that they've been friends. So yeah, it's just one of those, and it's understandable. Dennis is, he's somebody who's not outgoing if he doesn't want to be too but if he wants to be outgoing then you know, hell he's the life of the party yes yeah i can picture him keeping all that stuff very reserved yes very i mean you want to talk to him about loaders and trucks and races and beer and you want to talk to him about all that stuff he'll go on and on and on and on and talk to about all that stuff farming but to talk about stuff like this i don't want to embarrass him but He's kind of a sensitive guy when it comes to stuff like this, especially when it involves myself and his kids. I'll give you an example. Cheyenne broke her arm when she was two. She was in the ER. He was just getting out of work. I called him. He immediately, like I was almost at the ER and he beat me to the ER. He walked into the ER. We walked into her room And she was like, hi, Papa. And he just broke down. When it comes to stuff like that, he's super sensitive. Oh, especially when it comes to Cheyenne. No, him and Cheyenne are super close. But that's the way he is. But yet, he's a big, burly guy. And he could be tough and doesn't like to show a lot of emotion in front of other people except for family. And I think that's a lot of the reason why he doesn't like to talk about a lot of this. Because he doesn't want to show that emotion. It's just not him. Yeah, there's only one story that I can recall where Dennis did show emotion in public. It was when uh, Dennis was out at the bar and a classmate of mine when I was in elementary school, Dana Pratt, was killed in a car accident because his uncle was drag racing somebody. And it was maybe less than six months after that, Dennis saw the uncle out at the bar having a good time. He grabbed him, said, what the fuck are you doing here, baby killer? Get the fuck out of here. And Dennis, being as big as he is, can intimidate the hell out of anybody. 
So I remember hearing that just going, that really struck a nerve with him for him to actually yeah. act out like that in a public setting. Oh, yeah. You endanger a child when a child has no control. I mean, you do something very stupid like that. He, for one, is going to call you out and it angers him. He does not like that whatsoever. We've never hit our kids. I've probably been the yeller. He's the more get out of my face. I don't want to talk to you right now. But we have never spanked our kids. And um, you put a child in danger when that child has no control over the situation. That struck a nerve on him. Yeah. I think what it sounds like is that there's this super real and very deep down core piece of Dennis where like at his soul, like at his core, he is a protector. Like that in and of itself is what he is. I mean, exactly what he did, like when you were attacked, Jane, like getting to the hospital, how he was there with, with you through ICU, through surgeries, through every time you woke up, he was there. He never left your side, even afterwards, always making sure that you weren't alone, making sure your car was fixed. You didn't see the car before the car was fixed, keeping newspapers away from you. Like he's the protector yes. and that is his identifiable role. Yes, very much so. Describes him to a T, you know, and he loves his family, like loves his family unconditionally, like wholeheartedly. All great qualities. He really is a good man, and uh, I'm very lucky to have been with him for 37 years and have him in my life today. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. Now, I do have one last statement and question, Jane, and this is probably something to actually take home to Dennis. With every case that we've looked at, there has been the rumor or the question of, did the killer know the victims? You know, there was that rumor came up with Bernice and Ellen and also very loosely around Linda. Jane, was there ever a very loose acquaintance of either one of you that kept following up on the case or asking how you were doing every couple of years? Somebody that you might not say is a friend, but somebody that Dennis might either see at the lumberyard or up at the farm that knows you guys, but you wouldn't necessarily be like, hey, let's come over to the house for a beer. What a good question. Nobody really comes to mind. But now I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I, it will now. <laughs> I will be paying attention. <laughs> and think back to somebody that would be in their 60s to 70s nowadays yeah. or passed away within the last 15 years, but always would randomly catch up when seeing you guys. Yeah. Like, hey, any anything new with your case or anything like that? Yeah, I, I really got to think about that. Let's readdress that question again. We will. This was the question I've had written down for a couple of weeks that I was just waiting for the right time to, to ask you about it. Wow. Yeah. Let's readdress that question in the next couple of episodes. Yeah, because it's one of those that doesn't necessarily have to be from Hinsdale. It'd be somebody from the West Brattleboro area the Claremont, the Putney area. Yeah. I actually have one last question, and this is addressed to both of you guys too from the episode. What do you guys think of Bert, the telepathically psychic eyewitness? I think it's interesting how Dr. Philpin said, you know, he's never been in the house, but described that living room to a T. That was very interesting, especially having someone like him actually say that. I believe that for whatever reason, he was brought into that house spiritually and saw what he saw. What about you, Drew? 
take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Really? Yes, but I don't know why. Can't really explain how there is some validity to his statement because he did know so much of the layout of the house and everything like that. But how common is the layout of their living room compared to other houses in the area? If you do look at the outside of one house, you can see kind of the structure, how many other houses in the area have the same structure and are going to have the same layout of the house. But what could he have gained by coming forward with this information? I mean, supposedly he even gave a name, which would be interesting to know who that name was. I don't know. I guess it really gets to how descriptive did he get with the house? Did he get descriptive with furniture, pictures on the walls, the color of the carpet? Or did he just get descriptive with where the rooms were in the house, the construction of the house? Exactly what he brought forward. Was it exactly the layout of exactly how the living room looked? Or was it more of a, oh, when you walk in the front door, the living room's on the left? Which, if you look at the house, you can take a pretty damn good guess that the living room is going to be on the left-hand side when you walk into the front door. Just as a wild guess, you got a 50-50 chance it's either on the right side or the left side. That's where it would be nice to get a little bit more clarity on what actually did the psychic bring forward as far as detail that made them actually bring his name forward and the fact that we actually still know it to this day. There had to have been some validity to it. Don't really know. A lot more information is needed on that guy. I think, Amanda, we need to find him. I'm actually going to try and contact him and approach him with a little bit of a different approach, right? You might be a lot more open of talking to him and being like, I believe what you say. What's a little bit more of the detail? Well, and that's exactly the sort of approach that I would take with him. I understand the way that his story sounds. I understand that if you've never experienced what he experienced, you would think that he was crazy. But my thoughts immediately go to number one, what did he have to gain with recounting that, with going into that trance? It's not like he went super public and was like, I am all knowing and there's none of that, right? He doesn't want to speak with people now about it. And I'm sure it's because of the way that possibly the situation was covered. And I can tell you guys that I've actually experienced what he did. And it scared the living shit out of me because I didn't even mean to do it. Not about any one of these cases, but I've actually experienced this. And again, I understand how crazy it sounds. I do. But I personally do believe that people do have the ability to channel and to see things like this. We may never know the reason, but I'm going to try and get a hold of him and see if I can talk with him a little bit, hear a little bit more specifically about like what he did see and maybe even about the backlash that he got from seeing it. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. Yeah. I have more questions for him too. I guess you would know this, Amanda. It's really not clear when he came forward with this information at how many years back, but say it was, you know, 30 years later, is he going to remember specifics? Is he going to be able to recount what happened, what he experienced? Is he going to be able to bring it back? I'm not sure if he will. I guess it all depends on the person and how impressionable the experience was for him. 
I don't know if there's some sort of documentation that he has as well, as far as like sort of like what he recounted, not just being in like the police files, because I know that the police spoke with him and questioned him. And that's when all this came out. So it's important to note that many times people with abilities, when they sort of go into this, like in Philpin described it almost perfectly in this weird trance-like state. When people are channeling and actually go into a state like that, quite often they don't remember what they actually said or did afterwards, or they don't remember all the pieces. Now, if you channel a situation or you channel something, say a year later, you go back to try to channel that that same thing, will you get the same effect? Will you still be able to channel what you channeled previously? Most of the time, yeah. And most of the time when I'm doing specific work too, I'll actually do like automatic writing. I'll actually do writing along with it to help it flow. And especially if I reference that back, all of that will come back in my memory. Now, was Bird identified in newspapers or from Jen's research? I think through John, Dr. Philpin. Okay. Okay. Because I was sitting there going, why the hell would the cops put the information out there about this, you know, giving his name and that he was a psychic? But when it comes to the other witness, there's no mention of his name, just that he was a Marine on leave, and that's it. You know, I think, you know, I'll have to go back to re-listen to that and, and talk about it a little bit more on the next episode. I think Jen did say she read it somewhere, too. John confirmed the information for her. Yeah, I think John solidified it. I personally haven't read any articles. If there were any articles written. You know, Linda was living a very different life than Eva. She was living a great life. She was married. She had two wonderful children that were in school. She was involved with a lot of nonprofits, started a lot of programs, had a successful husband, extremely smart, beautiful. She was very beautiful. She was living a good life when this monster took it from her. It's unfortunate that her children had to grow up without their mom, even though they, they turned out to be wonderful people and, and very successful people. It was good to, to get to know her. Jen, again, did a beautiful job describing her life before it was tragically taken. She absolutely did. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15 minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.